Genesis chapter 32, beginning at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with the children. Yet you have said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. So he spent that night there, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he delivered into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the foremost, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself spent that night in the camp. That night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. 
he himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I meet? Jacob answered, To find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand. For truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God, since you have received me with such favor. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have everything I want. So he urged him, and he took it. You may be seated. What does the face of God look like? When I was a child, I would look at paintings and drawings which depicted God or Jesus, and I was always impressed by the face of God. However, I was disappointed when people told me, no one knows what God really looks like. Those are only guesses at how the face of God might look. The same disappointment came with Hollywood's attempts at portraying God or Jesus. In Star Trek V, the crew of the Enterprise encountered a being they thought might be God. This being even presented himself in multiple forms with different faces to suit their expectations. However, we all knew there was something wrong when this God demanded to take the Enterprise in order to travel through the universe. We all asked the same question that was raised by Captain Kirk. Why does God need a starship? George Burns played God in an old movie with John Denver. That certainly didn't inspire the sound or look of God for me. Now, Charlton Heston wasn't bad, except, of course, that was Moses, not God. Jim Caviezel more recently portrayed Jesus in The Passion. But that wasn't quite perfect either. Even I played Jesus in an Easter drama at church. Yes, looking in the mirror doesn't quite do it for me either. In the Bible, we're told that when Moses asked to see God's glory, that no one could look on the face of God and live. The priests who entered the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement were all instructed to make a cloud of incense in order to hide the face of God, lest they see God and die. Despite such warnings, our curiosity continues to drive our desire to see the face of God. Now, traditionally, the face of God is depicted as that of an ancient wise man with a long white beard, with an expression revealing power and justice and compassion all at once. 
At the same time, we look for God to appear in manifestations of a colossal, supernatural, immortal, divine being who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. Of course, even in the midst of its warnings, the best place to look for the face of God is to begin with his revelation in the Bible. Our text for this message reveals an important aspect of how the face of God can be seen and reflected. In our search for the face of God, we will follow the story of the patriarch Jacob, as revealed in the book of Genesis. We're first introduced to Jacob through the account of his birth. He is born the second of twin boys, and he is delivered with his hand gripping his older brother's heel. Thus, from the beginning, his actions reflect the meaning of his name, Jacob, one who attacks at the heel, one who supplants, overreacher, deceitful one. Jacob is described as a quiet man living in tents, while his brother Esau is described as a skillful hunter, a man of the field. The two might fit the caricatures of, on the one hand, an intellectual, perhaps a schemer, and on the other hand, a burly outdoorsman. When Jacob and his brother Esau are older, Jacob exploits Esau during a moment of weakness and persuades Esau to sell him his birthright as the firstborn son. The birthright traditionally provides to a son the leadership of the family and a double portion of the inheritance. The next time we encounter the two brothers, their father Isaac is old and near death. It is the time when Isaac decides to impart his blessing on his oldest son. Once again, Jacob takes advantage of the situation, tricks his father by impersonating Esau, and Jacob secures his older brother's blessing. Now, a common interpretation of these events emphasizes the diverse character of these two brothers. Esau might appear dull and dim-witted, a brute of whom a person can easily take advantage, while Jacob might be considered a wise opportunist who sees God's path before him and pursues it. Thus, we may be tempted to admire Jacob for his foresight and ingenuity. After all, he's a patriarch of Israel and identified as an heir in the line of the covenant and its promises. However, before we gain too much admiration for Jacob's actions, we should consider a significant caution. There's always a danger in the Bible and in life when we call something bad good. Jacob's actions are clarified for us through the words of brother Esau and father Isaac. Isaac explains to Esau, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau then complains, is he not rightly named Jacob for he has supplanted me these two times. First he took away my birthright and look now he has taken away my blessing. Esau begs for whatever blessing his father has left and he is granted a blessing but one which implies a life without plenty and a life as a servant to his younger brother. At this point, Esau says to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. 
This is the point in the story at which Hollywood would insert some infamous tough guy phrase into the screenplay, such as Esau threatening his brother with words like, the next time you see my face will be your last. Take a good look at this face because the next time you see it will be the day of your death. Or suddenly, someday this face will be that of your executioner. Due to this threat from his brother's anger, Jacob moved away and ran north to Haran, to the house of his mother's brother. And along the way, Jacob spent the night at Bethel and had a dream. And in this dream, God appeared and repeated to Jacob the promises of land and descendants which reflected God's covenant with his grandfather, Abraham. In addition, God promised to be with Jacob God promised to provide for him, and God promised to bring him back to his homeland. But once again, Jacob's character of self-preservation and scheming emerges as he responds to God with a conditional vow. He vows that if God will take care of him, and if God will provide for him, and if God does bring him back safely, then the Lord will be his God. Now it always struck me as quite bold that in the face of a divine appearance in which God promises to care for you, that you respond with a vow which serves to test that promise and withhold allegiance until after God has delivered? But that's Jacob. Now while in Haran, Jacob, the trickster, seems to finally meet his match. Uncle Laban craftily tricks Jacob into marrying his older daughter, Leah, after the two men had agreed and arranged for Jacob to marry the younger daughter, Rachel, which is the one Jacob really loved. Jacob served Laban for seven years in order to marry Rachel, but was deceitfully given Leah instead. Jacob then had to work an additional seven years in order to marry Rachel. Now Laban justified these actions by saying that according to tradition, the older must be married before the younger. As a result, Laban not only married off two daughters, but he also gained another seven years of service from Jacob. At this point, the battle of tricksters is underway. During Jacob's years of service, Laban changed Jacob's wages ten times. Meanwhile, Jacob actually devised a method of causing the stronger sheep and goats to breed striped, speckled, and spotted offspring, which Laban had agreed would all belong to Jacob. Therefore, Jacob strengthened his own flocks, while Laban's were left with the more feeble animals. Finally, after a total of 20 years of service, Jacob had enough. He took his wives, his children, his flocks, his possessions, and he returned to the land of Canaan. It's at this point in his life that Jacob, the trickster, is finally confronted with more than his scheming mind can escape. Like all of us at some point, Jacob comes to the realization that he is not completely self-sufficient he must learn to function in relationship to God.
As Jacob approached the land of his birth, he sent messengers out to brother Esau. You can imagine, after 20 years, the grudge which Esau has carried against his brother for stealing his birthright and blessing is likely at the point of lifelong bitter hatred. When Jacob had left Canaan years before, Esau was planning to kill Jacob. By now, the struggles of making his way through life without the extra inheritance he expected, and under more of a curse than a blessing, Esau is probably planning torture as well as death in regard to brother Jacob, the deceiver and thief. So after 20 years, Jacob sends a message in order to discover Esau's state of mind. The message is clearly a humble greeting seeking to find favor in the eyes of Esau. Now, recognizing this critical point in the story, we all eagerly anticipate Esau's response. And we discover that the messengers bring back news that Esau is coming out to meet Jacob and he's bringing with him 400 men. Suddenly we envision scenes of old western movies in which the sheriff has gathered up a large posse in order to capture and kill the enemy. In our story it seems clear that Esau is on the warpath ready to finally deal vengeance against his evil brother. Jacob panics and he prepares to meet the face of wrath in brother Esau. Once more, Jacob relies on his cunning and devises a plan to possibly survive. He divides his people, flocks, herds, and camels into two companies, and he reasons if Esau destroys one company, perhaps the other will escape. Then Jacob does what most of us do in a time of a life-threatening crisis. He cried out to God, it has always intrigued me that even those who don't know God or don't care to know God, in a moment of crisis, tend to seek him out. When we used to live in San Francisco, my wife worked uh, teleservices at Bank of America, and she was known for sharing her testimony and telling folks what God was doing in her life, and most of her co-workers were not interested in hearing about it they always diverted the conversation to some other concern, some other topic. However, we were both surprised when the Gulf War began and progressed. All of a sudden, Janine's cubicle was surrounded with workers who wanted to hear something about God. Their friends and loved ones had their lives on the line, and they wanted to hear some news about God, and they found it through the witness of a Christian. Now you can imagine in the case of the patriarch Jacob who did know the Lord, we can understand all the more why he would seek God out in this time of crisis. Jacob reminded God that God had told him to return to Canaan, and Jacob reminded God that God promised to take care of him, and Jacob reminded God of the covenant promise of descendants as numerous as the sand of the sea, and Jacob cried out to God to deliver him from the hand of Esau, who may come and kill us all, including the mothers with the children. Then Jacob continued to devise his own means 
of surviving Esau. Once again, he divided up his servants, goats, sheep, camels, cattle, and donkeys into a number of droves. He sent them in waves toward Esau, and he gave instructions to the servants in each group, telling them to explain to Esau that these possessions are all gifts for Esau. And Esau reasoned to himself, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. The statement in verse 20 of Genesis 32 contains an interesting wordplay using the term that we normally translate face. The Hebrew term which translates face is often used to simply identify one's presence. Thus, what literally might be translated to go before my face simply means to go before me. By making use of this idiom, the writer packs Jacob's statement with four instances of the term for face. Thus, if we were to read Genesis 32:20 with a real literal rendering, it might read like this. I shall pacify his face with the gift that goes before my face. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will lift up my face. The wordplay and repetition of this term heightens the tension of the upcoming encounter between Jacob and Esau. When they meet, what will Esau's face look like? The story anticipates a face of anger and vengeance, but before our curiosity and anxiety are addressed, we must wait through one more event before we read of Jacob's encounter with the face of his brother. The night before meeting Esau, Jacob is alone on one side of the river Jabbok. The inspired text becomes intentionally mysterious and vague in describing this event as if a fog rolls in at night. The account begins with another wordplay, this time in relation to Jacob's name and the name of the river at which he is located. The name of the river begins with the same initial, but is otherwise nearly the reverse of Jacob. Jabuk, Jacob. It is dark at night and Jacob is alone at the Jabbok. The text tells us that a man wrestled with Jacob all night. The man could not prevail against Jacob, but was able to touch or strike him on the hip and put his hip out of joint. Yet consistent with his character as one who takes blessings, Jacob grabs the man and refuses to let go unless he blesses him. The mystery is heightened when the man changes Jacob's name to Israel and claims that Jacob has striven with God and man and has prevailed. Next, the man does bless Jacob. Finally, Jacob makes the incredible statement in verse 30 of chapter 32, saying, I have seen God face to face and yet my life is preserved. He says this after naming the place Peniel, which translates face of God. Somehow, sometime, 
during this mysterious wrestling match in the dark of night next to the river Jabuk. Jacob starts out grappling with a man and ends up claiming to have seen God's face. Once again, the term face overwhelms us with three appearances in one little verse. Jacob called the place face of God, saying, I have seen God face to face and yet my life is preserved. Jacob's statement recalls that tradition that no one can look on the face of God and live. Jacob expected to die but survived the face of God. The question now remains, will Jacob survive the face of Esau? Once again, Jacob divides what he has left. Most of his possessions have already been sent ahead as gifts to Esau. Now he divides his children among their four mothers. He places the two maids and their children in the lead, then Leah with her children, and finally Rachel and her boy Joseph last of all. This time, however, instead of hiding behind all of these groups, Jacob goes out ahead of them placing himself before Esau and Esau's 400 men. The dreaded encounter has finally arrived. Jacob bows to the ground seven times, perhaps expecting to have his head chopped off. As we have followed the story, we expect to read that Esau is the subject of such verbs as strike, kick, stab, and kill. Not only has Esau been victim to Jacob's deceit, which denied Esau full heritage and life blessing, but we know that Esau becomes the ancestor of Edom, a nation identified through history as an enemy of Israel. We know that Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, are destined to be lifelong enemies, like Arabs and Jews, Christians and Muslims, Protestants and Catholics, Palestinians and Israelis. This is just one moment in a global history of violence which seems to reflect the destiny of these two brothers. Genesis chapter 33, verse 4. Esau is indeed the subject of four passionate verbs, but they are not the verbs anticipated in the story. Esau ran, embraced, hugged, and kissed Jacob, and they wept together. Here we encounter one of the greatest reunions in the Bible. The two brothers reunite with a great image of love and fellowship. And in regard to all those gifts which Jacob sent ahead to Esau, Esau turns them down, stating he already has enough, and his brother should keep them. Recall back in 3220, Jacob had said to himself that he hoped to appease Esau with the gift or present which he sent before him. Here in 3310, Jacob speaks to Esau and presses him to accept this gift or present from his hand. In both of those verses, the Hebrew term mincha is translated gift or present. However, in the next verse, Genesis 33, 11, that word is changed to barakah, the word for blessing. 
the story has come full circle. Jacob now seeks to return the blessing which he stole from his brother years before. It seems the character of Jacob was somehow transformed on that mysterious night in which he wrestled with a man, or was it God? The conniver, trickster, deceiver, has come to a point of surrender and seeks to give up and return blessings rather than take them. Jacob is not the only character who appears transformed in this account. Esau, who spoke a death threat against his brother years before, has now embraced Jacob with love and forgiveness. And Jacob recognizes this grace as the text once again highlights this term, face. In Genesis 33.10, Jacob literally says to Esau, I see your face as seeing the face of God. What is it in Esau's face that looks like God? The context clearly indicates forgiveness and reconciliation reflect God's face. Jacob, who claimed to have seen God face to face the night before, now recognizes the face of God in his loving brother. It seems our global history of violence between brothers should not be passing responsibility and blame onto this original relationship of Jacob and Esau. Instead, our world needs to follow their witness of forgiveness and reconciliation. Esau is one of my heroes in the books of the Pentateuch. Over time, he took in the pain and the heartache which his brother imposed on him, and he returned forgiveness and reconciliation. In doing so, Esau reflects the very character of Jesus Christ. Despite our own forms of deceit and selfish ambition by which we have injured God and our brothers and sisters, Christ has not reacted against us with violence and wrath. Instead, he has taken in the pain and heartache of our sins even to the point of dying on a cross on our behalf. Christ runs, embraces, hugs, and kisses us with love and reconciliation. Ultimately, Christ calls us to follow him and join this work of forgiving and reconciling others. We are called to take in whatever pain and heartache others may bring and return forgiveness and reconciliation. As we pursue such Christ-like character, let us consider the example of Esau, and may our faces reflect the face of God. Our Lord, as you have healed us and saved us, even so fill us with your Holy Spirit, that our lives might reflect your face of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.